The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 1 together. Uh, We are continuing in our series, examining the miracles of Jesus and what they teach us about our God. Uh, Thus far, we have studied Jesus turning water into wine and also healing uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and so we can learn about our God's character and nature by observing how Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit, performs miracles, and how he interacts with those that they affect. Uh, We have also gained some profound insight into how we should trust, worship, and respond to Jesus as we see the responses of those who are recorded in these miracle accounts. And so now we're going to read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 together. Uh, Hopefully you're there. Here we go. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's a good one. It's actually the the Sea of Galilee. I don't know why we use different names. Probably just to trip up preachers, right? But that's the Sea of Galilee, same body of water, okay? He was standing by the lake, um, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down... And began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Praise God for his word. Uh, before we start pulling apart what I believe there's so much richness and depth in just these 11 verses, we won't by any means touch it all. However, before we dive into that, I think there's an important point that will help us set the table for what we're going to look at, but also um, it'll help you to deal with a, a common, I think, misperception that happens around this set of verses. Um, it was a couple weeks ago, we were downtown doing outreach, and um, I encountered a gentleman who was open to conversation, and so that's always exciting. Um, but one of his big hang-ups when I was talking to him about, you know, I said, where, where do you stand with the Lord Jesus? What, what do you think about, you know, church and gathering with God's people? How do you feel about all that? And his, his major contention or, or issue was he felt like the Bible was full of contradictions, or, or he said that at least. He'd heard that somewhere. And so uh, I said, well, give me some. And... Uh, he, what did he, he had something, it wouldn't even technically be a contradiction, but he, he kind of started throwing out some things, and so I, I tried to answer those gently and, 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 you know, in a kind of congenial way, but um, he, he ended up saying, I'm going to be back next week, because I know there's some more, so I said, well, brother, come on, man, <laughs> stack them up and bring them back, we'll have a talk about it, so hopefully I get to see him again, but the point is, there, there are many people that stay away from Jesus because they believe things like, the Bible's full of contradictions, um, many times they can't qualify that, but they hear that, and I think as God's people who are going to uh, represent him wherever we are, that are going to be uh, willing to give an answer for the hope that we profess, you know, that's something that Peter encouraged us to do, uh, it's good to know where some of the even proposed contradictions lie, and then how it is that, that actually the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And so, um, this, this here, uh, Luke 5, verses 1 through 11, this was not the first time that Jesus and Peter had met, okay? In John chapter 1, here, I'll tell you this. So in John chapter 1, there's a different account, and I'm going to explain that account to you. And some people look at John 1, 
and they think that's kind of an account of how Jesus called Peter and Andrew into the ministry and into discipleship with him. And then they look at Luke 5, and they see this drastically different account, and they're like, oh, well, there's, there's a contradiction. That's two different stories about how Jesus called these disciples, okay? The bottom line is it's, it's two totally different events, uh, and we'll look at that. So in John chapter 1, Andrew, Peter's brother, is a disciple of John the Baptist, okay? He's been following John the Baptist around, and Jesus walks up, and John declares about him, behold, the Lamb of God, okay? Um, so as he did that, Andrew then began to follow after Jesus, started asking him some questions and learning from him. Um, and then he goes to get his brother Simon, who is Peter, and tells him, we have found the Messiah, and uh, brings Simon to Jesus. Uh, it is at this time that Jesus tells Simon, uh, Jesus addresses Simon, and says, he tells him, you're going to be called Cephas, which is an Aramaic word for Peter, which is the Greek form, okay? So uh, it is not clear in John 1 whether they were formally called as disciples at that point, but they at least knew and began to associate with Jesus at that point. Uh, some commentators disagree, so I just want to say that to you, but, but I think that Jesus renaming Peter in John 1 and Peter referring to Jesus as master, as we see here uh, in Luke 5, means that they probably were called as disciples before this account of Luke 5. The, the point I'm making is Jesus and Peter had interacted before this. This was not the first time they'd encountered each other. That's clear from John 1. What's not perfectly clear is whether or not they had been formally invited to be disciples I think they probably had, okay? Um, is that something in here, or is that something outside? Can anybody tell? It's here? What should I do? Okay. Um, I can switch the other mic if we need to. Just let me know. So, um, I, I do think they were called as disciples before that. Uh, but definitely here in Luke 5, this is when they were required to lay down their business and follow Jesus full time. That is, that is for sure what happened. We see that here in Luke 5 clearly. So, the bottom line is, this is not a contradiction in how the disciples were called. It is clearly describing two separate events in two separate places. So why did I tell you all that? Well, I believe you guys are folks that really care about the fact that the Bible is the Word of God, uh, that it doesn't have contradictions, and so this may be something you'll hear. Someone might say, well, you know, John says that Jesus called his disciples this way, and Luke 5 says that Jesus called his disciples this way, and you can say, well, actually, those are two totally different events. The events of John 1 happened before the events of Luke 5. And you can tell that even from the geography. It tells you in John 1 they're in a different place than they are here in Luke 5. Okay, so, And isn't it sad? Here's why we need to talk about these things as Christians who care about the truth of the Scriptures. Right? We need to be able to talk through these things with folks because there's people that will stay away from Jesus over stuff like that. And it's just not looking close. Or it's just taking somebody's word that, well, that doesn't line up. And just a little bit of looking will show you that actually it's, it's not, this is not proof that the Bible was uh, not true or shouldn't be trusted. So these are things we need to um, be able to talk about and, and with a love motivation, right? Not because we want to prove people wrong, of course. Amen. Um, so this account, Luke 5, 1 through 11, is brimming with insight into the character of Jesus and his strategy for gospel mission. Um, it also shows us a lot about what a proper response to him looks like. Um, so the first thing we see here or that we're going to talk about is the fact that King Jesus is on a whole other level when it comes to power. He's on a whole other level. So for some of you that maybe aren't that excited about fishing or anything outdoors, it might be difficult for you to see um, the miraculous nature of this event. Um, you might say, okay, a bunch of fish got caught. Cool, right? Like, that could be luck. That could be um, just a good guess on Jesus' part, right, about where the fish would be. You, you, you may not see this as like, oh, wow, that's a real powerful miracle. Uh, the truth is it was not a lucky guess, and it's actually a really big deal for several reasons. So first bit of evidence I would give you for that is that a group, two boats worth, of professional fishermen had just finished being out all night and they had caught nothing, okay? These guys knew these waters. They knew the patterns of these fish. This was their livelihood, likely a business handed down from their fathers. And so they knew these waters. They knew where the fish were at. They had just been doing this all night long, and they came up with nothing, okay? 
So that's, that's the first piece of evidence that this is something special happened here. The second thing to consider is, is the time of day. Um, the best time for fishing was at night because that's when it was cooler. That's when the fish would be up near the surface and active, moving around. And so this is right smack in the middle of the day, which again lowers the chances of just accidentally catching a whole bunch of fish. Um, it was the wrong time of day for fishing. Uh, the third thing I would call your attention to is that the crowds were gathered there to uh, hear Jesus teach. Now, if you're a loud person or prone to a lot of talking, and you've ever gone fishing with like an avid fisherman that really cares about what's going on, uh, you've probably been yelled at and told to be quiet. Um, because you can't make a bunch of noise when you're trying to catch fish, because it will scare them off. They can hear it. Um, and, and so... There's a huge crowd on the shore. Jesus has just been preaching from the boat. This would all lower the chances that just accidentally we're going to pull up this huge catch of uh, two boat sinking fish, right? Um, it, is, it is not agreed upon by um, commentators or totally clear from the text whether or not Jesus exerted divine power to like cause the fish to school together and move into those nets or if just by... Like divine knowledge, he simply knew where they were. The text doesn't make that totally clear, so I, I don't want to make a dogmatic stance about that. I, I do want to say whether it was a divine knowledge by Jesus that he knew exactly where those fish were at in that moment, or if he caused them to gather together, either way, it was a miracle for these guys to pull up so much fish, their nets were breaking and two boats almost sunk. Okay, It's definitely, absolutely Something miraculous happened. You can tell from the text, they thought it was miraculous from their response, okay? And they would probably be a better authority on it than we are since they were fishermen, right? This blew their minds. Something happened here, um, and it deeply affected them. Um, I, I will just tell you, I, I believe there's evidence that Jesus caused the fish to school together into the nets. I'll just give you that. Uh, somebody else may think it was a divine knowledge thing. Either way, of course, Jesus gets all the glory, but... Um, first of all, it would not be hard for me to imagine um, that Jesus did cause the fish to kind of school to those nets because, A, God has complete and sovereign control over his creation, so it's not a stretch. I mean, he created it, so I know he can also control it. Uh, secondly, in the story of Noah, uh, it seems that God brought the animals together at the ark, so this wouldn't be like the first time divine power has like caused animals to move in a certain direction. Um, in my view, verses 6 and 7 point us to point more so to a miraculous gathering of the fish um, by Jesus giving a divine command, okay? Uh, here, here's the things I would say. These nets that these guys were using were built to withstand the stresses of the normal amounts of fish that were caught, right? Let's look at verse 6 and 7 real quick. Let's see what it says. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. Verse 7. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. They came and filled both of the boats, and they began to sink. Okay, so here's, here's what I would say. First of all, these guys use these nets all the time. So anything close to a normal catch of fish shouldn't have been bursting these nets. In addition to that, verse 7, we've got two boats built for the task of fishing, which have constantly, always, for years, been bringing in catches of fish. And today, we've got both of them filled so much that they're starting to sink. That's an incredible amount of fish, and it seems to be speaking to the fact that this is way above and beyond anything they would normally be expecting. And so even just Jesus kind of having a divine insight into there's some fish over there doesn't, to me, explain as well how we ended up with this many. It does seem that, that Jesus had some command over the elements of nature there and, and kind of commanded those fish in. Uh, if any of you are fishermen, I don't know if it's biblical for you to try to go do this on a fishing trip. I don't know. Uh, you can try. Um, and just be humble about the results, okay? I don't know. Anyways, um, I, I do think that Jesus did something there that, that caused more than normal, uh, obviously, amount of fish to come together. So either way, this was a miracle. And those professional fishermen were in amazement at the catch of fish. Uh, and they caught fish all the time. So just catching some fish wasn't going to be so amazingly uh, impressive to them. This, the amount and the way this happened, um, it, was, it was obviously so far beyond something that could be explained by luck or trickery, right? These guys were, that uses the word amazement. They were blown away by what they just observed, okay? 
So the question then is, what does this tell us about Jesus, and why does it matter to you today? Uh, some of you have no excitement whatsoever. Don't matter how many fish get caught in the net, you're like, yippity-doo, right? I don't like fish. I'm not going to go fishing. How does this apply to me? Okay. Um, you know, first of all, we, we read the Bible to understand who God is more than how it applies to us. So that's, that's premise number one. But most of the time, as we learn about God, it will also apply to us. So um, how does it matter? My, my question to you, friends, is have you ever been, like, in your life, have you ever been plodding along, going through the motions, discouraged, and feeling like you've failed? Have you ever been in that spot? Okay, here's part of why this matters to us today, because this is exactly where these guys were at. They had just given it their best effort, right? They fished all night. They didn't get, they didn't get discouraged at 3 a.m. And they, they were there the whole night. They gave it all they had. And what did they end up with? Man, they caught nothing. Nothing. They were tired, and they had done everything they could in their wisdom and strength, but they were not able to make it happen. This is the situation they find themselves in as they have this encounter with Jesus. All of a sudden, this, the principles here, now I, I know I need to understand what I can learn about Jesus and how he deals with me from that, because there's been times, I don't know, maybe you guys never get into this, there are times I've done the most I possibly can in my strength and ended up really discouraged and tired and had nothing to show for it. Am I the only one, or is there at least one other person willing to say, yes, maybe I've been there one time, or I at least heard about someone that was there? Okay, all right, good. Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> um, I, I promise you I've felt this way, and, and it's in times like this that there's, there's like the strongest temptation to give up. Um, and, and in the midst of this discouragement, Jesus comes and shows them that if they will trust and obey him, things are possible that would have otherwise been impossible. That means a lot to me today. I hope it means something to you because I have situations in my past, situations I'm dealing with now, and I know there's going to be more in the future where if I'm looking at what I have to bring to the table, what needs to happen, it's impossible. I can't do it. I don't have enough to get it done. And so this, what we see here, something we learn about the character of God is he's willing to bring his power to bear on the situations that we may be totally exhausted. Maybe we've even gone so far as to sin in how much we've tried to do this thing on our own and rely on our own strength. But he's still merciful and he's still powerful and he's willing to pour that out for the sake of those whom he loves and who love him in return. I would ask you, friends, will you rejoice with me today that impossible things become possible because of Jesus? Just that simple premise. Can you rejoice in that? Impossible things become possible because of Jesus. If there was nothing else to draw from that, but we walked away today and settled, rooted into our heart was a truth that just because something looks impossible to me doesn't mean it is because Jesus can flip those things around. Jesus can bring power, strength to bear that I did not see was available or have access to myself. Impossible things become possible when Jesus is involved. doesn't matter how tired you are. I know some of you are tired. doesn't matter how many times you tried. doesn't matter how much of a failure you feel like right now. Do you think they felt like a failure? Professional fishermen. Their daddy taught them how to fish. His daddy taught them how to fish. They came in from all night fishing with what? Zilch. You want to talk about discouragement. Jesus finds them there washing their nets. <laughs> I'm sure they had a long face. I'm sure that was not a happy day. And that ties to all kinds of other things, right? This was, these guys weren't fishing for leisure. This was their business, how they supported their families, right? And so all of that, the insecurity, the questions about that, all those things, right, that, that tend to, to come and plague us as well. Um, Jesus changes impossible things to possible things, and I'm real, real grateful about that. Uh, Peter knew all the reasons that this obedience didn't make any sense, and yet he obeyed. Can we learn something from that real quick? Everything I listened to you before, the time of day, this is the wrong time of day to fish. Yet Jesus gets in this boat, teaches from the boat, and then says to Peter, all right, now let's go out to the deep water. I want you to let your net down. And, and you, know, you know Peter wasn't fully feeling it, right, on this whole thing. You know he's exhausted. You know he's tired. And he actually even puts up a little bit of an argument, right? It says, um, Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. 
but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Whoo, come on now. You see what I'm talking about? He was tired. Peter is a professional fisherman. Jesus at this point is a traveling minister. He's an orator. He's also got some carpentry skills. Jesus is not a professional fisherman. Peter knows that, right? So what, is all, what are all the things he's dealing with in his mind here? It's the wrong time of day. We've been doing this all night and caught nothing, Jesus. Like, I love you, Jesus, but I've been working all night. Like, I already got in this boat and rode you out here so you could speak to the crowd, sir. I'm exhausted, right? You know, all this stuff is going through his mind. He knows all the reasons why this is a bad idea from what he can see. But on the word of the master, there was something in him, a faith that rose up. That If, I'm, if I'll trust what he says, then it's, it's worth doing. He goes out there and we see what happens. Peter knew that obedience in this case didn't make sense, and yet he obeyed. I hope you're not just looking at Peter's story right now. I hope you're thinking about your life. I hope you're thinking about the fact that there's going to be many times, from a cultural perspective and sometimes specifically things that God will ask you to do, that from your viewpoint, from your vantage point, will not make sense. The question is, will you obey him in those times? You'll be better off if you do. Peter was, if you just keep reading. I think it's also interesting for us to notice that Peter generously gave of his time and resources so the word of God could be taught. And he did this before he had any idea Jesus would tell him to cast those nets in one more time. Did you notice that? Jesus walks up. Peter's washing his nets. Remember, he's been out third shift all night fishing, rowing a boat. This is physical labor. This was not an easy thing. Now he's washing the nets, which is physical labor. He's tired. Jesus shows up. The crowds are pressing. Jesus needs a place to teach from. He says, Peter, and he asks, Jesus asks, if you pay attention, Peter, can we get in the boat? Can we push out a little bit? And what is Peter's response? Not, Lord, I am, I am dog dead tired. Can you just stand on the shore, please, today? No. Jesus says, can, can we do this? This is going to help me get this kingdom message to more people. What's Peter do? Grabs an oar. Jump in, Jesus. Yeah, we'll push out a little bit. There's something in that for us. And, and the order is important. Did Jesus have to say to Peter, hey, if you do this, something good will happen for you? That should also be instructive to those that teach the word of God, right? We need, we need to teach people obedience to Jesus without having to dangle carrots, right? You're going to have greater joy, yes, because you obey Jesus. But you also should obey Jesus because he's Jesus. And because he's the king of glory. And because he is a part of the triune God who spoke and created everything out of nothing. And thus, when he asks you to do something, there should really be no consideration of is this going to end up benefiting me? Obedience to God always does benefit. However, ultimately, just for the sake of obeying the God that made us, just for the sake of being a part of what he's doing, Jesus here says, his pre, what, is it, what does it say? Uh, he, was, uh, he had the crowd pressing around him, and he's, he's teaching, he's, uh, because people are pressing around him, listening to the word of God. Jesus is teaching and sharing the word of God. Peter, something in, his, something in his heart, he desired more so than sleep, more so than rest, to be a part of the fact that the word of God was being shared with all these people. That mattered to him. And so he responded with incredible generosity, used his resources from his business, his boat, his energy. He's whooped, and yet, come on, Jesus, get in the boat. Yes, sir. And had no idea that what was going to happen after that was the world's most miraculous catch of fish that anybody's ever seen. And so that, I think that's beautiful. I'm thankful that was Peter's response. Uh, there's something here for us to note that is pretty important. Um, after Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that Peter returned back to fishing for a short time. I don't know if you remember that story. There's, there's a time they're out fishing. Jesus appears on the on the shore. It's one of my favorite stories um, because, first of all, I, I like Peter, and when Peter figured out it was Jesus, it says they were like 100 yards out in the water, and, and Peter put his coat on and ditched his buddies and like jumped in the water and swam to Jesus. So that's just, I just want to be like that. Um, like, I love y'all, but I will leave you in the boat to get to Jesus. So <laughs> um, 
I, I like that. And then when they got there, Jesus had cooked breakfast. This is like post, Jesus has risen from the dead, man. He's got nail marks in his hand. This is the, the triumphant, glorious king who just conquered sin and death, cooking breakfast for his disciples. I mean, what this says about the God we serve, it, it just, it helps me, man, uh, that our God is that kind of servant. So anyways, that's not the point. The point is, what were they doing in this encounter? They were out fishing. Peter had gone back to fishing, okay? That's important. Follow me on this because it matters. So the, the ability for Peter to jump right back into that business after Jesus died is evidence that what happened here in Luke 5 was less cavalier and reckless than it seems at face value. I, I think we often read verse 11, which says, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And I'll be honest, oftentimes I've thought of that as like, literally they got to land and jumped out and walked away and just followed Jesus. What would that mean? That means they, they just left the fish there to rot and committed to following Jesus as full-time disciples. First of all, this would be terrible stewardship. Jesus just did a miracle, either through divine insight or by calling all these fish into the nets, they just hauled in more fish than anybody had ever seen, right, in one time. Um, it'd be terrible stewardship to just leave those fish there to rot, not do something with them. Uh, it would also be irresponsible, honestly. Um, we know that Peter had a wife, remember? Jesus healed his mother-in-law two weeks ago. We talked about that. So not literally he did it two weeks ago. We talked about it two weeks ago. So Peter had a mother-in-law. That means he had a wife, okay? Um, it is also possible that Andrew, James, and John, his other business partners, um, had family as well. And so it, it is very plausible that the amount of fish, that because the amount of fish was so great, they were able to sell them at the market and use that money to take care of their families while they followed Jesus as his disciples. It is also very plausible that they left the business to employees or stewards to manage. Why is that plausible? Is that in there? It doesn't say it directly, but my question would be, how did Peter jump right back into the fishing business after Jesus died if he had just given all his boats and nets away and had no access to them? I mean, there was, there was an immediate jump back in there. And so, uh, and some of you are struggling with this, and let me, let me answer that. It does not take away from the boldness and faith of these men if they left their business in the care of others and sold those fish to make sure their families were provided for. In no way does that change the boldness and faith it took for them to follow Jesus as his disciples full-time, to set that down, to entrust it to others, even if that's the way they did it. My question would be, why would Jesus encourage these men to follow him, but violate the godly principle laid out in 1 Timothy 5.8, which says this, if someone does not provide for the needs of their family, they have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. Why would Jesus have them just... He, he called all these fish into the nets. They've got two boats so full of fish, they almost couldn't get them to land. They almost sunk on the way. Is, is, there, is there something romantic about walking away from those fish and proving something? I don't think there is. As a matter of fact, it's more likely, because Peter was able to jump right back into fishing, and because of the fact that Jesus knows how God feels about people taking care of their family, that these fish were sold, and that was part of how these men were able to do ministry for the rest of those three years. I don't know if it covered it for the whole time, but what a beautiful picture of Jesus saying, hey, you're going to follow me in boldness and faith. I'm going to provide for you. I got this. Don't worry about it. I don't know. I think we need to be careful um, romanticizing your responsibility. Serving Jesus is going to be reckless, no matter what. It's going to cost us something, no matter what. Um, that's clear from the scriptures, and we should not shy away from that. However, um, this account shows us that Jesus is not against being responsible and caring for the things that he's given you to steward. Just say it that way. Uh, it may very well be that Jesus performed this miracle partly to provide the finances necessary for these men to follow him in full-time ministry and still provide for their families. Uh, it's also possible this huge catch of fish would not have been enough for their families, uh, but I, I believe, again, that would be a real strong statement to these men that, listen, you're going to trust me and follow me 
Um, I'm not going to cause you to violate this principle that comes from God the Father that people should provide for the needs of their family. It's just strong language in, in uh, 1 Timothy 5.8, right? Let me read it again. If someone does not provide for the needs of their family, they have denied the faith. Do you hear that? Like, that matters a lot. Now, it can look different in a lot of different situations what it means to provide for the needs of your family, but we got to know that that's a factor. And we got to know that not doing that or not caring about that is equivalent to denying the faith. I don't think Jesus would have called these guys to do that. That's the basic premise. I think the second thing that we can point out from this is, so the first thing was that King Jesus is on a whole other level when it comes to power. Somehow, by his, by his divine knowledge or by his, the, the exertion of his divine will, two boats almost sank because so many fish ended up in those nets. Jesus, he's not doing parlor tricks. When Jesus does a miracle, it, it's, it's things that uh, can't easily, easily be explained other ways um, and thus leads to amazement and leads to repentance. The second thing is that King Jesus is on a whole other level when it comes to strategy. Um, this account, as you read it, can look like a somewhat happenstance series of events, right? But a close examination shows that uh, Jesus had an intentional agenda the whole time. And here's the question, why does that matter? Why does it matter that Jesus was being strategic here? That what we're looking at, this little, this little view of, of this account, of this event, that, that Jesus had more in his mind than just what was happening here. Why, why does that matter to us? Should it matter? It matters because we, friends, are constantly tempted to view situations and scenarios through our limited perspective. We see what's going on around us, and often we are confused or discouraged when all the time God is working in and through those situations. And I'm going to show you that Jesus is doing this miracle. He is interacting with these people in this time and space, but he's also got other things going on. Uh, first of all, how do we see that? The first thing I would point out, coming back to the fact that Jesus asks Simon Peter to use his boat. Um, this absolutely, from Peter's perspective, was probably an inconvenience and somewhat of a frustrating request. Um, you know, they'd, again, they'd been, they'd been fishing all night. They were now trying to get their nets cleaned up. They were likely looking forward to going to sleep so that they could get back up and try to do it again the following night. And then here comes Jesus. Can we use the boat? That I'm sure, there was a, I'm sure there was a twinge there of trying not to let Jesus see you roll your eyes. You know what I mean? It's like, mm, yes, 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 let's get in the boat. But though, from, so from their, that's what I'm saying, from their perspective, what was kind of a frustrating request, what really Jesus is doing, he's showing them and showing everyone that would read this account that sacrificial generosity for the sake of the gospel and the building of God's kingdom always leads to more joy than selfishness or a priority of self-preservation, right? Jesus knows this account is going to be put into the word of God, and he knows what the example is that's being set by Peter doing this, because he knows what's about to happen next. Peter doesn't know what's about to happen next, right? He's got a perspective that is locked into a timeline, all he knows is I'm super tired and Jesus just showed up and asked me to take the boat out, right? Like I was almost to bed. From his perspective, it's like, okay, it's, it's, it's probably just, may even be begrudging sacrifice, but I'm, I'm going to obey the master here. But what he can't see that Jesus can see is just, just a few moments later, he's going to teach about the kingdom and he's going to look over to Peter and say, push out a little bit farther, drop those nets. You see why this matters? You see the strategy of King Jesus? He knew when he came and asked about the boat what was going to happen next. Peter didn't know. So Peter was frustrated, but Jesus knew something was going on. Does this matter for you, friends? You got anything going on in your life where you're frustrated about it? You don't see how it's going to go good. You wish it wasn't this way. Describe it any way you want to. Issues, complaints, issues that, that almost you'd be, you'd be tempted to be frustrated with God about it. But what you don't see, friends, are the things that God sees. He can see down the timeline. and He's doing something with you if you'll trust him. Peter may have been frustrated, but you know what? He got in that boat and he pushed out a little bit. He obeyed. 
Sometimes obedience doesn't feel like a carnival full of cotton candy and flashing lights. Can I just say that? Is that okay? I'll be, I'll be honest. Ultimately, obedience to God always leads to greater and more joy. I, I will go all the way to the hilt on that statement. I believe it with all of my heart. But sometimes I can't see exactly how it's going to lead to greater joy when I'm in the middle of the obedience. Sometimes it just feels hard. But we need to look at examples like this and understand. God has a strategy. God has a plan. He's working something. So let's obey him, even when it seems frustrating, even when it seems difficult, even when we're tired, right? I know I keep saying that because sometimes I'm tired, so I'm, I'm just relating to the story, if that's okay. I'm sure all of you are just like the Energizer Bunny, man. You never, you never feel fatigued by this life. There's a couple Snickers. Maybe, maybe I'm not alone. All right. So we, we, first of all, we see the strategy of Jesus, and we see his intentionality and his plan at work and the fact that you know he comes and asks for the boat. He, know what's, he knows what's going on, but Peter doesn't. And we learn from that, we see an example then that sacrificing and being generous for the sake of the gospel, that's what Peter did. That was a major sacrifice. That was generosity on his part. Took the resources of his business to assist Jesus to be able to preach to these crowds. Used his energy, the little bit he had left. This was a a sacrifice and a generous act by Peter, and it led to joy. Um, Much more joy than if he would have said, you know what, I just can't do it today, Lord. Sorry, Master. I just don't have it. Can't help you today. Um, interesting side note. I don't know if any of you know this. Jesus, Jesus was, a cor- of course, well aware of the physical properties of sound. I, I don't think it was just that there was like room running out on the shore, necessarily. Um, I believe part of what Jesus was doing, pushing out on the boat, is because if you speak over the surface of water, it actually has like an amplifying effect upon the sound. And so... I just like to see when Jesus, who created physics, like uses them, right? And so, I don't know, that just gets me excited. That's really nerdy. I know, right? Like, who are you telling? I already know. Uh, but I think that's cool. Um, and that, that probably had something to do with what he was doing. I think he was creating room, of course, because people were crowding in, but also actually him speaking over that water, if it was calm, it would have it acted as, as an amplifier so more people could hear him. So, there you go. Uh, that's got nothing to do with any of the deep points we're making, just... Interesting side note, science nerd out moment, but I'm done with it. So for those of you that hear the word physics and get real fidgety and nervous, we're done with it now. We'll move on to the next thing. Um, So Jesus shows his power through this miracle, um, but it is obvious he is not only thinking about the implications of this moment, right? So he does show his power to all that are there to, to witness it, but it is clear from the way he's Uh, talking and what he's doing, he is not only thinking about this particular moment. Jesus knew this miracle was going to have a particular effect on those who witnessed it. And we see specifically how an encounter with the sovereign power of God affected Simon Peter. The, 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 The text in this account zeroes in specifically on how it is this miracle affects Peter. Um, There is something instructive for us both in Peter's response to Jesus and Jesus' response to Peter. Uh, Peter's response shows us that when you encounter the holiness and majesty and sovereignty and unmatched power of the God who made us, the humble realization that we are not worthy of his presence should be vibrantly clear. Okay, where did I get that? Let's look at how, again, how Peter responds It says, um, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. So what is Peter's response? It is clear as as he witnesses the, the unveiled power and majesty of God at work, it conjures something in him that he is not worthy to be in the presence of one so holy and powerful and with so much splendor. Doesn't he? He falls to his knees, and what does he say to Jesus? Get away from me. I'm not worthy to even be in your presence. And, and being in the presence of God, it, it, 
it should and it can conjure this awareness in us of our lack of worth to be there. Let me, let me qualify that with one other thing besides this. Peter's response echoes that of Isaiah when he encountered the glory of the Lord. I'm going to read you just a bit of Isaiah 6 here. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, here's, here's what I'm saying, this echoes Peter's, this, that Peter's response echoes Isaiah's. Okay, so do you, did you track with me what just happened? Uh, essentially, the, the glory of the Lord fills the temple, and Isaiah's there. This is Isaiah's response. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response in the presence of the unveiled glory of God is very similar to what we see Peter having. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Peter's response is he sees the power of God exerted in this situation, this miracle occurring. He falls to his knees and he says, get away from me. I'm not worthy to be near you. And it's true. We are completely and totally unworthy to be in the presence of our holy God or have relationship with him. And yet, and yet, our Savior King, without denying the truth of our sinful inadequacy, pours forth grace and mercy. I believe Peter's response was proper. And the only way it doesn't send us into a devastating downward spiral of depression and running away from God is because this is the way God has responded to us through Christ. Jesus shows us here in a particular instance the broad way God has chosen to respond to the inadequacy we have to be in the presence of God because of our sin. What does Jesus say? Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And what is contained in that? First of all, don't fear. I know you feel afraid. I know you're witnessing power. You don't quite know how to even comprehend. But I'm telling you right now, don't be afraid. And secondly, what does he say by saying from now on, you're, you're going to be catching men? He said, I'm going to do something with you. I'm going to change it. I'm going to make it to where you are able to be a part of what I'm doing. And you are going to be able to be close to me. And we see this is the pattern of our God throughout the entirety of the scriptures, right? Our first parents fail. Our first parents sin. They do the one exact thing God told them not to do. And instantly, right away, God starts to roll out the consequences. But even in the midst of laying out the consequences, he's sowing seeds of hope. And he's saying, this is not how it's always going to be. Yes, there is consequences. You're in trouble, and here's what it's going to look like. You're in trouble, here's what it's going to look like. Satan... You might bruise the heel of the one I'm sending, but he's going to crush your head every single time. As we sit and we are tempted to just wallow in the pity of realizing how unworthy we are to be near a perfect holy God, to have relationship with him, instead of just letting us sit in that puddle and letting us sit and feel like we're failures with no hope, God reaches to us every time in his mercy and extends these extensions of his grace every single time. And we see Jesus do that for Peter right here. Peter is encountered full, open, face to the glory and the power of King Jesus as he exerts this miracle. He is not, there's no question for Peter what's going on here. You might look at it and go, ah, I don't know still. I know he said there's some stuff. Eh, it was a lot of fish. Big deal. Peter knew something happened because he fell at the feet of the master and said, I'm not worthy to be around you. I'm a sinful man. Please get away from me. And he was serious. That's where he was at. What's Jesus' response? You know what? You're right. You are nasty. Get on. Yeah, let me take a few steps back from you. I don't, I don't want to be near you. He says, no, do not fear. From now on, you're going to catch men. Don't fear, Peter. I got a plan for you. I'm going to do something with you. Notice, this is very important. I already said it, but I'm going to say it again. 
Jesus didn't say to him, oh, Peter, no, no, you are worthy to be in my presence. Did he? Did he pat his little head? No, he didn't say any of that. He just said, don't fear. I got a plan. Don't fear. I can fix that. He, didn't, he, he is unworthy. Jesus didn't fix his statement. But because of what Jesus can do, he's going to make him worthy. It's not going to be anything Peter does. It's going to be what Jesus does. Come on now. You should be more excited about that than you are. Come on. Peter was overcome with the depth of his sinful imperfection, contrasted against the sinless perfection of the Lamb of God. I'm, I'm thankful Jesus let Peter's statement rest where it was because what he spoke was true. And Jesus didn't deny his lack of worth or what Peter really deserved. But Jesus also, just like God always does, poured forth mercy and grace in that same moment. and said, yeah, that's true, but there's something else that's true too. I'm going to change that. I'm going to make you a catcher of men. I've got a plan for you. I'm going to do something with you you could never have done with yourself. Woo! Come on. This means something to me. I mean, I don't know. It matters to me because I'm as aware as Isaiah and I'm as aware as Peter that I don't deserve what I have in Christ. And it's important that you get that. And if you don't, you need to, you need to seek after the presence of God. Get into the place. Seek and ask God to visit you like he visited Isaiah. Seek and ask God to bring his glorious presence down upon you. Let yourself be put in a position to be contrasted where you stand in, in, in terms of holiness and perfection to where God is. And let that, that absolute fact of your unworthiness rest upon you. But don't fear. Have hope because righteousness is available to you through Christ. And he's willing to give you the robes you've earned are tattered rags that you would get, you'd get arrested for letting your kids wear them. They're so, they're so nasty and tattered. It's, it's, it's a wretched picture what we've earned for ourselves. But Jesus is willing to take those off of us, take the gleaming, spotless, radiant, white robes of righteousness he earned through a perfect life and his obedience to death all the way to the cross. And he will drape those beautiful robes of righteousness across your shoulders and you don't deserve it. So I hope you're thankful because that's the only right response to understanding what's being declared here. No, you're not worthy, but I'm going to do something with you. No, you're not worthy, but I'm going to pull you into my redemptive plan and make you a catcher of men. I'm going to bring you into the most glorious rescue plan that has ever been gone, undertaken in all of, of time and history. You get to be a part of it. It's going to be by my strength and my power. Praise God. The word catching here, when he says, I'm going to make you a catcher of men, there's a connotation in the Greek of catching alive. They have different words for this. And what Jesus is saying, he's making a very clear contrast between what Peter had been doing and what he was about to turn him loose to do, what he was going to make him into. That he was going to begin catch, he was going to be catching dead men and making them alive instead of catching live fish and making them dead. And so that's just cool, and it's there in the language, so I thought I'd give it to you. Praise God. The word is so deep, man. That's what I'm talking about. That's why we can't, that's why we can't read this and just just give give you know three quick fuzzy principles for you to feel better about yourself. And we got to get into the text. Because every single one of these words is breathed out by God and intentional. Everything Jesus said, he said it the way he said it, when he said it, on purpose. And it's deep, man. This, this word is a never-ending, deep fountain of beautiful revelation and inspiration and truth. I'm so thankful for the word of God. I'm thankful Jesus promised Peter he was going to teach him how to catch men and make them alive. Friends, I want to encourage you today with with the sovereign strategy of our God. I want to encourage you that with the fact that he is always working and weaving things you can't yet understand. I, I made a bold statement earlier that Jesus isn't just thinking about this miracle or even the people that are around to, to witness this, but there is, there is more Jesus sees ahead of this. Just like I told you, when he asked to get in the boat initially, he knew there was going to be a catch of fish afterwards. Peter didn't know that. Peter obeyed. Jesus knew how that was going to go. There's, there's more to this, and, is, and is, even as Jesus responds to Simon Peter this way, 
um, he's, there's, there's more to this than what we can see here, and definitely more than what Peter could see at this point. This miracle showed the ability of Jesus to make the impossible possible, and Jesus told Peter, he gave him a glimpse of the fact that what he learned that day about his master was going to matter greatly in the future. He wanted Peter to remember that in his strength, he could do nothing. But if he trusted and obeyed Jesus, undeniably miraculous things could happen. He wanted Peter to remember if Jesus was with him, he had no reason for fear. Here's what I'm telling you. Jesus wasn't just answering this situation. Jesus wasn't just doing this miracle in this moment. This interaction with Peter wasn't just about what was going on right now. Jesus could see further than that, and he was building something in Peter. He was shaping and molding Peter for something later. And here's what I submit to you, friends. Can you think of any future events recorded in the scriptures where these truths about who Jesus is, how much he can be counted on, the fact that in your strength, you're not going to be able to do anything, but if Jesus is a part of what's going on, impossible things become possible. Can you think about something in the future, and in regards to Peter that the the scriptures give us, where these things he learned about Jesus this day, in, in, in this situation, became very important for him? I can. Acts 2. The day of Pentecost, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to Peter and promised to him, Peter preaches a sermon that leads not to 30 people, not 300 people, but 3,000 people turn from sin and trust in him that day. And what was the issue surrounding that? First of all, the Holy Spirit comes into the room the upper room, uh, it says that all of the apostles were, were speaking in other tongues. It says that there was people from several different areas there speaking several different languages. These guys started speaking in all of these different languages, or, or these other languages were able to hear uh, the, the gospel being preached and the, and the proclamations of the glory of God in all of these different languages. And it says, it goes on down to the bottom of that, where God is doing this incredible miracle, but people are in the streets scoffing. They're saying, ah, these these guys have gotten into some good wine already, right? And so is that not not like the epitome of what holds so many people back from being bold for Jesus? A flat-out, clear social rejection. You step out in boldness, you obey God, people start laughing at you, people start saying, oh, you're crazy, or you're too fanatical, or whatever the thing, whatever it is we fear, right? And, And was Peter a guy, aside from the help of Jesus and his Holy Spirit, that might be prone to fear of rejection? Do we have any evidence for that? Help me think about it. Yes, because a little girl came up to him and said, hey, aren't you one of the disciples that followed Jesus? He's like, no, definitely not. No, no, no. That's not me. It's another guy. I look like him. I get it all the time. No, he said three times he denies Jesus just like Jesus said he would. He ends up cussing at this little girl because he's so freaked out about somebody. Somebody might think I'm on the losing team. Without the, come on now. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, without Jesus coming in and making Peter into something that he was not before, he was a coward, and he was not someone that would ever stand in the middle of the street as Acts 2. All these people are saying, all these guys are drunk on wine. What's he say? He's like, hold up. No, 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 no. This boldness is upon this this now catcher of men, empowered by the Spirit of God. He says, hold on a second. It's 11 in the morning. We haven't drank wine. Let me tell you what's going on here. And he goes on to tell him straight to his face, guess what? This is a result of the guy that you just crucified. The guy that met all of the requirements we've been looking for for a Messiah. He lays it out to him. He preaches in the middle of the street the entirety of what they just missed and lays upon them the, the absolute responsibility for crucifying Jesus. Doesn't hold back not one bit. Doesn't hold one punch. And what happens? What happens? Does Jesus' promise in Luke 5 become true? Do you think Jesus knew this was going to happen in Peter's life later on? Do you think Jesus knew that Peter needed to learn some things about him and trusting him and about impossible things becoming possible? Do you think Jesus remembered this day, the day he stood in the middle of the street, preached a sermon by the power of God, and three thousand people turned from sin and trusted in Christ. I'd say that's a pretty big catch of men. 
I say there's a clear connection between that big load of fish that day and 3,000 people coming to saving faith through the preaching of this guy that without Jesus was a coward and couldn't even stand to be in his holiness and presence. Come on now. Why did I tell you all that? Why did I draw that connection for you? Because sometimes you're, sometimes you're in Luke 5 in your life. Sometimes you might be in the spot where Jesus is asking to get in the boat, and you're like, you know what, I just don't have it. Sometimes you might be tempted not to obey because you know it's going to cost you something, or it just doesn't make sense to you. Or you might even be past that point, and, and you have obeyed, and you've seen some of God moving, and, and because of that, you're, you're scared to go any farther. You're not sure you're worthy to be a part of something so phenomenally beautiful as God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Maybe you've backed out or kept away for various reasons, and what God is saying to you, friend, is he wants to make you a catcher of men, and whatever you lack, he can make up the difference. Well, I'm worse than Peter was. Then God will get even more glory by you submitting yourself to the process that he wants to take you through. And he can take a guy like Peter, make a promise to him in Luke 5. Think about this. Guys, I need you to understand why this matters for your life. The process you're in with Jesus right now, he is intentional, and he's just as strategic with you as he was with Peter. He's building something out of you, and I know there's stuff in your life that doesn't seem to make sense right now. I know there's puzzle pieces that don't connect, but I'm telling you, Jesus sees how those go together, and if you'll trust him, and you'll obey him, and you'll keep moving forward, he wants to do with you what he's done with Peter. He's going to make you into something you could have never, ever become by yourself. And his call or his command for Peter to not fear but become a catcher of men was not just something specific to him. If we are going to follow Jesus, we are going to be called to obey that great commission, which is to go into all the world and make disciples, teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. This encouragement to Peter, this plan you see unfolding. It, between Luke 5 and Acts 2, friends, this is what I need you to see. Some of, you, some of you get discouraged because you're impatient. Can I just tell you the truth? You're impatient and you're unwilling to walk with God long enough to see something like this unfurl. Between Luke 5 and Acts 2, it's, it's, it's at least a year and a half, probably a couple years. Think about that. God makes, Jesus makes this promise to Peter. You're going to be a catcher of men. Think about the rest of what happened. Peter helped with some stuff. Peter was there. Peter assisted and, and learned from Jesus. He, he, he wasn't a big juggernaut catching a bunch of men, right? And as a matter of fact, as Jesus gets arrested, he pansies out. So he hasn't really lived up to this. All that time, right? He could be going, well, Jesus said he was going to make me a catcher of men. I should fear not. Well, I don't see it. I don't see God's promise coming true. I don't understand what God's doing right now. Any of that sound familiar? I don't know if I want to keep doing this. Well, thank God something stuck with him that day. Thank God that Jesus cultivated into Peter by the power of his spirit the trust to keep pushing forward. And after some years, he saw this word spoken into him by Christ come to fruition. This man stood in the middle of the street, preached a sermon that brought fire down from heaven, man. 3,000 people said, what do we do? That was their response. He, he laid the hammer down, man. That's my problem. That's why I can't do fluffy preaching. I can't do it. I don't have an example of it in the whole Bible. Peter said, you guys killed Jesus. It's all your fault. He went hard on them. He did not hold back one bit. And what did they do? They said, man, what, do we, what should we do? Like, tell us what to do right now. And Peter says, all of you right now, repent of your sin. Repent. He doesn't say, here, take this class and you'll feel better about yourself. He says, repent of your sin. Be baptized and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Praise God, man. We need to understand. We need to, we need to be bold enough to let people know in and of themselves, they do not, for, under any circumstance, deserve to stand next to or in any close proximity to the perfect glory of God. They have not earned for themselves at all a relationship with God, but that Jesus has made a way that they don't have to get what they've earned, they get to get what he's earned. That by faith, we can be counted as righteous. That in and of ourselves, 
We all, if, we, if, if you are thinking right, if I am thinking right, if all of the world understand how they actually relate to a perfect holy God, they would be on their knees and they would be saying, get away from me. I'm, I'm a sinful man. That should be the response of every person that doesn't understand the second half of the gospel. That's why we got to preach the whole thing together. That's why we got to tell people the whole thing together. That's why when we evangelize and share the good news at, at our jobs, in our schools, with our families, wherever we are, we can't be shy about the bad news that every one of us is in Peter's spot. I'm a sinful man. I am imperfect and thus not worthy. But then we get to share with them the good news. God solved that problem. Sent Jesus to do it. And so we don't have to fear. We don't have to shrink away. We don't have to hide from God. We can come to him. There's beautiful language in the Bible that says we can come in the throne room boldly, invited like sons and daughters. Friend, you don't deserve that. But the free gift of that beautiful invitation has been extended to you by grace because of Jesus and his finished work. I hope you'll receive that. This miracle, a bunch of fish being caught, was an intentional part of God's master plan of redemption. And this miracle was a part of how Jesus was preparing Peter for what he would do with him years later. This was not some random act by Jesus, but a purposeful foreshadowing of the power of the truth of his gospel. I, I hope that if I've not done an adequate job connecting for you why it's so powerful that Jesus knew he was doing something with Peter in Luke 5 that Peter didn't find out about until Acts 2. If that connection hasn't been made for you, I'm, I promise you I'm going to be praying over that because it's so important for you to get that. It's so important for you to understand you don't see everything God's doing right now. And so part of your frustration is because you, you can't. You can't get to God's vantage point. That's where faith and trust come in. He did it for Peter, friends. And he's made it clear he's willing to do it for us. May we be a people who are ever in awe of God's sovereign power. May we be a people who see the beauty of generous sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And may we be a people completely free of fear because our trust is in a God who is working in every situation for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the intentionality in what you chose to be recorded. These accounts. I know the book of John says there's so many other things, Jesus, that you did that all the books in all the world couldn't hold the content of all you did and said. And so I'm thankful that you were specific in having these things recorded, that we have Luke 5, 1 through 11 that shows us shows us these beautiful things about you, your character and nature, the fact that you are supremely and sovereignly powerful, that you control all of your creation with a mighty hand. We rejoice in that because we serve you and because uh, we are tied to you, Lord, uh, by faith. And so we are thankful that you are the God who is absolutely in control of everything. We're thankful for that. We're also thankful that we see in this account your intentionality, your strategy, the fact that you are building men and women into something, that you're doing things with them that they may not even realize, that you see far down along the line of, of time and you're not restricted the way we are. And, and you spoke these words to Peter knowing it would be years later before it would come to fruition. And I thank you, God. I thank you for what we learned from that, that we need to be patient, that we need to trust you, that we're not always going to see all that you're doing that we never will see all that you're doing, but we can trust by faith that you absolutely are working, that you're faithful to your word. Thank you for that. Lord, please help us to be bold in telling the truth. When Peter declared that he was a sinful man, unworthy to be in the presence of Jesus, Jesus didn't correct him, but he told him, don't fear. Lord, help us to be bold as we are heralds and ambassadors of your truth. God, help absolutely everything we say in regards to this to be motivated by love because without that, it'll mean nothing. But Lord, help us to love people enough to tell the whole truth, to be bold, and to know that sometimes rejection is possible, but the love demands we push forward and we continue to speak the truth that every man needs to hear, every woman needs to hear. Thank you, Lord, that you would entrust this beautiful message to us. 
Thank you for promising to empower us, God, to do whatever it takes to bring this gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, we, we respond like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He encountered your glory in the temple. And his first response was, woe is me. But his next response was, here I am, send me. And God, may we say that with all of our hearts and mean it. Use us, Lord. We are yours and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.